Previously on Stargate SG-1. Why are we why are we so bad at our unpaid internship of podcasting? Internship? Does that mean like at some point we're going to go to the big leagues and get paid for this? Yes, once we have 5 to 7 years of experience, we'll start making minimum wage off this podcast. Whoa. Bad news is minimum wage will still be 750 then. Welcome back to Season 2 of Stargate Weekly. This time around, we've got better mics, we're going to have more guests, we're going to have more cool stuff with Stuart and Thad, and there may also be explosions. Oh, there will definitely be explosions. Okay, just to be fair, there may not be explosions, because safety first. Eh. As we've said before, Gould don't have OSHA, so... That's very true. So... So which episode are we talking about this week? (laughs) This week, we're talking about the Serpent's Lair. Our synopsis from TV Guide. O'Neill and the SG-1 team are captured while trying to stop a gold warship set to attack Earth. Alright, that's reasonable. I mean, it's on the, yeah, it's right, you know, boom, right there, on the nose. Mm-hmm. Tells what we need to know. No frills. Yeah. No excess. I like it. I mean, just right out the gate. The, the opening bit where they're there in the control room, the, the, the Peltak, right? Do we know it's a Peltak yet? Braytac later mentions. Oh, does he? Okay. Later in the episode says the Peltak is two floors up or two levels up or two decks up or two something up. Okay. Uh, anyway, everything on the Peltak, everything in the cell after they get flashbanged. Awesome. Yeah. Just pure SG-1 fun. Yes. No, I love this episode. I would say this is better than the first half, which was also really good. This is definitely better than the first half. What was your favorite part of this episode? Oh, boy. That's tough. I can tell you mine. I just had... Oh, go for it. Uh, It's uh, when um, Samuels tries to go through the gate and Hammond's just, like, not having it. Yeah, no, that was good. Although, I have Kennedy written every time when I was actually talking about Samuels. Kennedy was that other guy. That that guy from The Enemy Within. Yeah, no, I know. But all of those kind of wormy officers, they just like combine into one amalgam that is not... I want to say Samuels comes back again. <sighs> Why can't I remember the name of the ongoing evil colonel. Mayborn? Thank you. Samuels does in fact come back again in Mobius. Okay. Yeah. Anyone who isn't Mayborn is Kennedy. Basically. Well, I mean, okay. I feel like Samuels is way more memorable than Kennedy. I think Kennedy was just in that one episode. 
Kennedy was just in that one episode, but Kennedy and Samuels, they, they, they fit in the same slot. They're the same size peg. Hmm. Anyway, that was, that was absolutely my favorite part. Just the, the, the sheer look of disgust on, on Hammond's face as he walks away to, just perfect. Yeah, I don't know if I have any particular individual favorite part. Uh, maybe really close to the top is when Sam bites, bites Jack. Colonel? Sorry, sir, it's just so dark. Carter. It's alright. I like your attitude. I missed that entirely. I don't recall Sam biting Jack. Okay, so it's when they're first waking up from the flashbang. Mm Mm-hmm. Teal'c wakes up first with a start. And we get this great all-in-on-Teal'c's-face moment, which is always good. Uh, Jack is up next. They start talking about how they are blind. Jack kind of fumbles over, lands on Sam somewhere. I honestly didn't notice either time whether it was, like, on her face or if she, like, grabbed his hand and pulled it. And she, she grabs whatever is near her and immediately bites it. <laughs> Because she's blonde, and that's the best you can do. <laughs> All right, I uh, I was apparently asleep for that section. Right. Well, because Jack even calls it out later when he says, "Carter, if anyone comes in here, bite him on the hand." I don't remember that either. But yeah, so the Peltac and the prison cell, both of them, just pure SG one gold. Yes. More than I would have to say anything from season one. Hmm. At least for that amount of time. Because we're talking like a solid like five minutes of the show that's just... I really like how Jack and Braytac take turns having the better plan. Yes. Although I don't believe that Braytac would have just... I have trouble with the concept that Braytac was just planning to die and didn't even consider an escape plan. I had not thought of that at all. I was more hung up on, hung up is the wrong word, but more focusing on the fact that we finally figure out, well, not finally, but have a much clearer idea of where Braytac slots into the orc chart. Hmm. He's clearly the second prime. Yeah. So he's number three. Wait, who's? Oh, right, because the boss is number one. Right, right. Well, I was, yes, also because three is the second prime. Because one is not a prime. (laughs) No, I like that a lot. That's good. That only that would only work on like seven people, like in the world. Mm. Uh, but that was good. I like that. Seven is also prime. Yeah, that's why I said it. I figured it probably would have been better if you had said five, though, being the next prime. Shut up. Uh, yeah. So we talked about your favorite moment. What has to be, I guess, statistically, my favorite moment. <laughs> Cause I have so many, it's so many great moments. Like, uh, when they go to disable the shield generators towards the end of the episode. Yes. And, I mean, first of all, why do shield generators on the baddie ships always look that way? Because that's the way it looked on the show, so they had to make it that way. <laughs> um, we get to number three on the Daniel Death Count. Not really. He was 100% gonna die. He was die going to die, but he did not, in fact, die. Ah, 
two and a half, two and three quarters, 2.999 repeating. This is yet another presumed dead instance for Daniel, but he did not actually die. If he had actually died, he wouldn't have been able to get into the sarcophagus. What was the previous presumed dead? Uh, fire and water. Yeah, but we find out really quick that he didn't die. True. And he was presumed dead in the sense that it's like, we the viewer never actually see Daniel get consumed in flame and fire and water, which the team had the false memories implanted that that's what happened. Right. We the viewer see Daniel get shot a lot and bleed a lot and cr- and like drag himself to the sarcophagus. He was dead. Mm. He was he was like. Ten minutes from death. So, fun fact. Oh. When they showed Daniel dialing the alpha site, he's actually dialing the address to Abydos because that was stock footage from the movie. Stock footage from the movie? Mm-hmm. Did they have a DHD in the movie? Yeah, actually, now that I'm wondering, I, I'm confused by this note. They had to have. Right? Oh, no. Never mind. No, 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 no. They did, but he wouldn't have, they wouldn't have dialed Abydos from it. Right. That's a fair point. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Those were two separate things. It was stock footage of dialing Abydos. How would... No, it wasn't... No, it was just the glyphs... I don't know why the Stargate Wiki put these together. Um, when the Alpha site is dialed up, the glyphs are dialed exactly the same as those for Abydos. Stock footage of the Stargate from the film is also used. Ah. Okay. I feel like those should be two separate things. Yes. Okay, so I gotta, I, I got to talk about Apophis saying that the humans, meaning Earth, are going to pay for their insolence 100 fold after hearing that his son, and I have another point about that, being gravely injured. So he's gonna like severely maim a hundred people. Uh, yeah, that's, that, that's what it sounds like to me. Okay, so let's even allow for the idea. That he's what we, what he means literally is the uh, is the fact that SG one and the other SG's numbers mm-hmm. have killed many 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 of his Jaffa. Considering how small each of the SG teams are, and how long this program has been going on, I would put the total Jaffa death count at no more than one thousand. That sounds reasonable. How exactly? Was Apophis going to ensure that he killed no more than 100,000 humans when he started trying to glass the planet from orbit? Mm, that's a good point. Was he going to pick, like, six small towns across the world and be like, these guys are going to pay? <laughs> Maybe he was. You don't know. I don't know, because he doesn't tell us anything. Which gets me back to my other point about Sklarel being Apophis' son. <laughs> How... Yeah. How does that work? Okay, so um, I guess the symbiote is his symbiote's son? Yeah, I figured that's what he meant, because they're ghouled, because we haven't met the good symbiotes yet, the Tok'ra. But, yeah, actually, what? how are the male ghouled involved at all? Because if we fast forward to an episode that we quote almost every week... <laughs> it's like every other week 
Anyway, if we fast forward to that episode, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, actually. But you know the one I mean. I do. I do. It seems as though uh, there doesn't need to be a male Gould involved at all. But Hathor, Hathor told us that she so enjoys the juices. But that's from the host, not from a Gould. Yeah, Hathor also makes new Gould without the male host. So, ha- yeah, this is a very... In- without, without, without a male Gould. Yeah. Yeah. So, this is interesting. And I do wonder, how is it Apophis' son, then? Right. Huh. That's what I'm saying. Right? Yeah. It's a brain tickler. It is. Yeah, it tickles your brain like a ghoul crawling up in there. I was thinking that, yes. Yeah. So, another thought I had. Yeah. Yeah. What is the point of the Jaffa armor? If two shots from a Zat still kill them, what is the point of the armor? (laughs) So, outside of internecine battles between the ghoul system lords... and we're not 90% even aware of this concept. Sure you pronounce that word wrong. How would you pronounce it? I don't think there's an I where you pronounced an I. I had always heard pronounced with an I. I know there's an E there. And I think it's a t- internecine. Internet? No, you're putting the emphasis on the wrong syllables there. Well, there's definitely no. There are. T- there are two eyes in an, in the word. There's two eyes in your face. Internecine. It is okay. It can be apparent according to dictionary.com, it can be internecine, 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 or eternison. Or no, inter internecine or internesson. I definitely put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. None of these pronunciations emphasize the second syllable. But Okay, you know what I'm doing. You know what I was doing. Hmm. Having been raised Catholic, Nicene, Nicene Creed, yeah, yes, big in my head. So internecine or internecine is apparently the the primary pronunciation. All right, hold on. We're gonna have my computer speak it for us. Ready? Uh huh. Internecine. Internecine. Okay, I can go with that. Okay, I still think internecine okay. works, but apparently not. I don't like the yeah. I don't like how that comes out. So anyway, one of them between the system lords. Not that we know what a system lord is yet. Systems lord. Systems lord. You're right. I'm sorry. I failed the pod. Uh, not by pronunciation though. That didn't do it. It was screwing up the plur- the pluralization. Yeah, like not you know going on an in joke that we've had going for like five years. Oh, I think it's been ten, buddy. It might very well be. <laughs> so anyway, the armor might be useful in those. It would not be useful in those scenarios because of the weapons against which they need to protect. But think about the primary point of the Jaffa. The Jaffa are a terrorist organization. Okay, so like the the random peasant with a with a spear wouldn't be able to. Okay, I get you. Or even like the weird crossbows that the Bursons had in Korai. The Jaffa are used as an implement an implementation of terror. They're stormtroopers. Basically, yes. For the same reason, like why do stormtroopers wear armor? It is to make them. Anonymous. I mean, I was speaking in the Nazi sense, but 
I, I guess the Star Wars sense also works. Right. Star Wars sense makes more like works better because that because there they are also wearing superfluous armor that does no good. It is just there to add to the effect. Yeah, and they do, and, and they are almost as bad as stormtroopers at hitting things, except when the plot requires them to, like Daniel. Right. And it reminds me of later in the show, I'm not sure which season, but it's pretty late. So we're talking like probably season seven, eight-ish, where SG-1 is equipping a group of free Jaffa with P90s. Yes. And uh, Jack has Carter get up to demonstrate the uh, accuracy and effectiveness of the P90. And she does ably because it's Carter and she's awesome. Mm -hmm. And Jack then gets up and holds up a stack weapon and says, this is a weapon of terror. It's made to intimidate the enemy. And then he holds up his P90. This is a weapon of war. It's made to kill your enemy. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. So everything about the Jaffa is about terror. And the ghoul maintaining their control, which is only achieved through terror and fear. All right, that's fair. But that's a valid point. If they're going to take it out with two shots from a Zad, I mean, really, what's the point? Exactly. Also, why, if they can get taken out with two shots from a Zat, which apparently can just fire an infinite number of times, we literally never see anyone ever doing anything with a Zat or a staff weapon to, like, recharge it. Why was Jack using his pistol when they're in the Peltac at the very beginning of the episode to shoot at the people trying to get into the door? He, like, fires off his pistol, empties the mag... And then switches to the Zad, and it's like, dude. Yeah. I don't know. The pistol fires faster than a Zad. I mean, a little bit, but the pistol, because of the armor, the pistol, you have to imagine, may not... Like, the Zad like, guaranteed, like, if I hit this guy, literally anywhere, he's going down. I was impressed at how well Daniel was able to just mow down Jaffa with the, with the gun, despite, you know... Only, like, aiming a little bit. That I had not noticed. He's just sort of like... I mean, I mean, it was clearly done to show that Daniel is not a soldier and doesn't even... Does, has no experience with guns. Yeah, but I mean, what kind of archaeologist carries a gun? Uh-huh. We don't quote that one quite as often, but yeah. We do not, although it is just pure gold. It's up there. Thing, that whole episode. In the middle of my backswing. <laughs> With him juggling. Yes. <laughs> I too experienced some discomfort when the loop resets O'Neill. <laughs> I got, I got, like, the top ten of the like the lines from the entirety of Stargate that stick out of my head has to be like, yeah, you know, your Kozars. <laughs> Just your Kozars. Yes. <laughs> Which isn't the same episode we were just talking about, but in terms of just, like, stuff that sticks out in my head forever, I must think that line, like, every other week. It's like, for whatever reason, it's like, oh, man, my Kozars. <laughs> Undomestic equines could not restrain me, is one that I remember. 
Also, obviously, my depth is immaterial to this conversation. Ooh, you see? <laughs> so deep. <laughs> oh, boy. It was a good episode. This was. This was a very good episode. Mm-hmm. And then there's also from Atlantis. Uh, in case you haven't noticed, I'm an arrogant man who tends to think all his plans are going to work. That one, I, I, I like that one too. <laughs> yes. So you and I don't like mm-hmm. how weird the controls are on the Hatak, and I've oh, always yeah. been irked by this. Yes. Just the weird rod things, and you, I don't know, you like tickle them in the right way, and the ship flies. What is that? And apparently, you just like hold your hand there in a certain way. Like you don't even have to touch it; you just have to hold your hand there, and it's like, oh yeah. No, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I've always thought that. Flying the Hatak. Have they called them Hataks yet? They did. They did at the end of season one, right? Yes, they called it a Hatak class vessel. Right, okay, okay. Yeah, because Teal called it a Hatak class vessel right after he had said he was unfamiliar with it. Right. So it has a uh, uh, thing of note. Samuels, <laughs> not Kennedy, says that the Gould Busters were... One uh, were one thousand megatons because maybe they thought if he said gigatons, no one would know what that meant. That's fair, actually. How often do you hear gigaton? Well, not just that, but how often did one hear giga in nineteen ninety eight? Nah, gigabyte hard drives were a thing. Like were actually common in PCs at the time. I was nineteen ninety eight. Would have been twelve. Yeah, I probably had like a six, like a six gig hard drive. I was gonna say my family bought a relatively run of the mill uh, NEC PC with a Pentium one uh, and a two gig hard drive in like ninety seven, ninety eight, somewhere in there. It was before Windows ninety eight came out, but not long before it. Got that turbo button? No, no turbo button. Too too old for a turbo button, or too new for a turbo button. But it was an AT hard drive had that, like, actual switch to turn it on and off. Or not hard drive, uh, power supply. Right, AT power supply, mm. right. You're thinking ATA hard drive at that sexy, sexy 100 megabytes per second transfer rate. Well, it it, it was. Well, no, it was parallel ATA. PETA. Hey, I bet that thing even had a PCI bus. Oh, okay. How on earth did they get one of the shuttles pressed into service that fast? Word! And how were they able to launch it? Because when when they go to launch things, they have a specific window, and then all sorts of stuff comes up, and then they can't launch again for another two weeks. Right. Yeah, you can't just, like, throw one of these things up into the atmosphere. No, I was having that same problem. Now, admittedly, the launch window is probably also highly dependent upon, like, fuel requirements for the length of the mission that they're undertaking, because different launch parameters will require more fuel to get into space, and that means that they'd have to use more of the auxiliary fuel tank, and once they get the shuttle into orbit, maybe they won't be fully topped off, etc., etc., Space is hard and incredibly complicated. Um, also, reason why we're not going to see a battery-powered rocket anytime soon. But if they're just trying to throw the shuttle into space to like capture people, 
and this might shoehorn into your second issue, how the heck are they capturing the people? Uh-huh. But if they're just trying to throw the shuttle into space to capture people and then bring it right back down after like three spins around the earth or something, the window might matter less than if it's like we're launching the shuttle for a 15 day mission. Okay. That's fair. Well, my thing is it makes sense. They would send the shuttle up to take a look, but they don't know that SG one is hanging out in gliders. Mm-hmm. And yet, our first sight of the shuttle is the shuttle approaching with its arm already out to grab them and then reporting we have them in sight. Okay. I'm glad that you mentioned the arm thing. Also, yes, how are they getting inside the shuttle? <laughs> I thought you were going to say with their doors open. Well, I mean... As you're like your point of contention. The doors would also be open for the arm to be out. The doors are open all the time. Really? Yes. I never knew that. Because the cargo bay is a massive heat sink. Yeah. Okay. If the doors are closed, the shuttle overheats. Okay, they're not open all the time, because they're not open on, like, takeoff and landing. Right, no. If it is in orbit, and not, like, performing drastic maneuvers, like, taking off and landing, the doors are open so that the shuttle can maintain its temperature. Okay, but the arm was also out. That... Yes, that is a valid point. Why was the arm out? What's the arm going to grab onto? It's not like a fully articulatable thing, and that might have have been a word. And even if the arm does grab the glider, how are they getting from the glider to the pressurized area of the shuttle without, you know, dying? They could hold their breath. You don't die nearly as fast in space as you think. Okay. All right. Yeah, you're right. You don't die in space nearly as fast as you think. That is the better way to arrange those words. Yes. Okay, you're right. But if that was the case, then when they when they are back on Earth, they should have um they should have broken blood vessels all across all across their faces. And they don't. Yes. All of the yes. And we come back to the shuttle doesn't know they're there. How is our first contact with the shuttle, the shuttle already starting to retrieve them and telling telling Earth that they have them in sight? How is it not unidentified vessel, this is the this is the space shuttle endeavor? You know, or something to that effect. We can't do anything about the fact that you're here because we're just a space shuttle. Uh, they're a formidable craft. <coughs> but anyway, as our listeners are, I'm sure, well aware by this point. We do actually like this episode. We just have to nitpick. It's what we do. You and I bet most of our other listeners are aware of as well. What's that? Space is big. Mm. Really big. Yes. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I bet I will. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. So how was the shuttle in exactly the right place in space? Yeah. To go face to face with our heroes and I ran out of... But they did it with grace. Hey! There we go. That's ace. <laughs> now we're out. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we had a good pace. Mm. Are you really going to try and tell me that you're not going to count this as a death as like Daniel death count number three? I'm not going to count this as Daniel death count number three. It's more than two. <laughs> it's two and a half. I'll give you two and a half. <sighs> half death. That's unfair. 
But hey, okay, hold on a second. Did I miss from Bloodlines where, did we both miss? Because I definitely don't think we talked about it. Did we both miss where uh, Jack first tells Braytac about Hammond of Texas? I think he does tell him that in Bloodlines. But how did we not point it out? Because I, in my head, I remember Jack telling him. I, I, I can picture Jack saying Hammond, and then he's like struggling for what to say next, and he says, of Texas. Right, now, and he's like, you know, they have hats, and he like gestures towards his head, which is why Braytac gestures towards his head. Yeah. You are Hammond of Texas. That's Hammond of Texas, fallen in battle. <laughs> right. But how how did we not point it out on Bloodline? I don't know, man. At the end of the episode, Jack is like hugging, like man hugging Daniel. Mm-hmm. And he says, Space Monkey. What is that? <laughs> I like how Carter is like not is not surprised that Daniel's there, just uh just like, oh, Daniel. Okay, I should have known you'd be here. She had, like, a weird way of saying it. I don't agree with your interpretation of it. I don't have a good way of phrasing it right now. But her way of saying it was very strange to me. Uh, I think I've gone through most of my notes outside of sort of esoteric-ish comments about things that Samuel said. Yeah. I- oh! I was going to make another point about the gigaton thing. Mm-hmm. So not only does he say a thousand megatons of a gigaton, the secondary point is that the fat boy, which was the second bomb dropped, was 21 kilotons, just to give an idea of scale. Okay. But, I mean, fat boy, in the grand scheme of things, fat boy was big for 1945. Yeah. I don't want... I understand why you're saying that. We have much bigger bombs now. Physically, they're smaller. All right. Yeah. We have better ways of making things go boom. Mm. Hmm. And then he says that they're made of the same materials as stealth aircraft, which is basically just, like, aluminum, maybe some carbon fiber, and then, like, a special coating. Yeah. So I'm not sure what makes them so great. But that's about it for me. I don't have... I don't have any other notes that we didn't talk about other than how much I love this episode and it was great and I really enjoyed it a lot because it had it is in fact great um oh I like how we learned that like if they hadn't done anything if they had never gone through the gate Braytac would have still saved their asses Braytac would have tried to save their asses he had three death gliders oh that's true and I suppose it's possible that he had a part of his plan that he didn't mention where he was somehow some way going to block the communications from the Peltac so that Sklarel couldn't come through and be like, no, my loyal Jaffa, you must obey me. Do not attack my father because somehow that's how this works and I'm his son, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so could take his three super loyal fighters, well, I guess two super loyal fighters because he's in one of them, and then grab the rest of Scarl's fleet and be like, "Well, Scarl told me we're gonna attack Apophis now, so let's do the thing, boys!" Yeah. I'm just saying, Braytech's plan had some holes. I'm not saying SG1's plan was great, since their plan was mostly just let's see where this gate goes. Yeah. 
and carry as many explosives as we can, since we're not going to bring our big old rucksacks. Okay, well, that part of the plan was good, carry as many explosives as they can. If they hadn't, I mean... But they didn't bring their big old rucksacks. That's true, they didn't. They didn't even bring, like, day packs. They didn't brought no packs. They didn't even bring Fred. Fred would have been a liability. They would have been so concerned with Fred's safety. <laughs> That's true. Making sure that Fred got back through the gate, back home safely. That's true. Yeah, Fred was a liability. I can see that. Now, I feel like there's more things to say. I don't know. I mean, possibly. Where did Apophis and Chlorel ring to? We don't know yet that they did, but yeah, no, they definitely did. Well, they did. You see them get into the ring and go... You see them ring out right before the explosion. Wait. Do we? Yeah, apparently that's something you missed. That's something I missed. But it, it doesn't show where they ring to. It just shows them ringing out. Does it have a name? Are you thinking there was a cloaked cargo ship? Yeah. It's a, I think it's only ever called a cargo ship. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. They have ring platforms. They do, but why was there a cloaked cargo ship? Plot? <laughs> I got nothing for you, man. I'm sorry. Yeah, because no, we do see... Apophis and Squirrel ring out, but it just seems strange that it just shows them ringing out, and it's like, well, I mean, they would have to be going to another ship that's, like, right next to the ship. I mean, how does this work? Yeah. Unless there's a ring platform somewhere on Earth, which... There is, we know. Yeah, we do know there's at least one. The one I'm thinking of them, thinking of wouldn't have done them much good, though. No. No. But, yeah. Okay. You ready to leave us out? So, if you feel like we missed talking about something in this episode, which is entirely possible, because I was going to make a detailed summary that we were going to go through, and then I didn't. So, you know, apologies, dear listeners, for that. I can see that you're really getting us off on the right foot with Season 2. Oh, yeah, totally. But anyway, if you want to tell us about that, feel free. You can tweet at us, at Stargate Weekly. You can leave us a message on Facebook. Our Facebook page is Stargate Weekly. You can send us an email at stargateweekly at gmail.com. If you want to speak to either of us or just find out what we're up to, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Tyrannicus. Fair warning, I mostly talk about Star Trek. I'm at Garicus, and I mostly just retweet things. I I don't talk about it a lot. And if you want to give us a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever it is that podcasts get reviewed, feel free. Remember how I said we're going to have more guests this season? Well, the first of those more guests is our good friend, friend of the show, Maggie Zetter. And we're going to be talking about In the Line of Duty. Very excited about that. It's going to be great. It should be. Uh, Yeah, she's still not on Twitter. She still can't follow her. Sorry. I'm going to say that's our show. Yeah.